The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. The sermon title is The Unexpected King slash Dumb. The Unexpected King and Kingdom. Here we have, uh, we find ourselves in the middle of Palm Sunday, right? This is not like any Palm Sunday that I've been a part of to this point. Um, usually I signify Palm Sunday by the amount of palm branches and being pulled off the stem in the back of my car when I get home. And that usually signifies to me, oh, we're in the, the week of, um, of Palm Sunday and Holy Week. But why is it that we as a, as a church... Why is it that we come back year after year to Palm Sunday? Well, it's intended for us to remember, to ground ourselves in the things of our faith, the key events of our faith that, that matter most, the birth of Jesus, the death and resurrection of our Savior. The repetition allows us to remember Right, Just like if we're learning anything new, if we're learning a new language, repetition leads us to remember. We do uh, this in little ways, just in everyday life, right? Our birthdays. Those of us that get up in years, we stop looking forward to birthdays. But when you're a kid, every year, it's a remembrance of, I was born on this day, we've made it yet another year further. Anniversaries, we do the same thing, acknowledging the beauty of our marriages in thankfulness. We do this in spiritual ways by taking of the Lord's communion, um, remembering what he's done. It, it, it helps us to be thankful, it helps us to acknowledge, helps us to re-engage with our priorities. Secondly, the repetition actually helps us to refocus. Man, just life can be so incredibly distracting. Life takes over. We get really myopic in our view of things when we need to expand our frame to see the big picture. I'm sure many of you are feeling this right now, being at home. My wife and I were talking just the other night, and she was saying, man, I, I see <laughs> some of the posts that I've seen right now are just are so disheartening to me. She said, because I, I see a lot of families just hanging out, watching movies together, having fun, being at home, doing home projects. And she's like, I don't think our family has ever been busier than we are right now. Maybe some of you can empathize with that. Um, but it's, it's just one of those things where we can focus so much on, I just need to make it through the day. I just need to make three meals or 10. I just need to clean the house. I need to keep my kids alive. We need to try to get outside at some point. We, we just, we can very narrowly define our view. So that's what we're hoping to accomplish this morning is to remember and to refocus. So today is Palm Sunday. It's the day each year, it's the, the, day, the Sunday before Easter Sunday uh, that we remember a landmark event in the life of Jesus, what we call the triumphal entry, right? Every time I think triumphal entry, I don't think Palm Sunday, I actually think flannel graph, for those of you that have grown up in the church, uh, trying to get Jesus to be kind of near the donkey and like walk them down the hill uh, is exactly what I remember from growing up, but one of the most significant weeks in Jesus' ministry is actually the last eight days of his life. 
for the first uh, 30 years of his uh, life. He was, he was living here. He had three years of ministry, um, uh, earthly ministry, but this last week of his life is considered the most influential and most significant, and, and we know, but that's by far... In fact, the final week is the most important to a lot of the gospel writers, and they devote a, a large portion, actually exactly one-third of the combined total verse and chapter count through all the gospels. So Matthew devotes one-fourth of his gospel um, to the last week of Jesus. Mark devotes one-third. Luke devotes one-fifth. And John, he devotes the entire half of his gospel just to the last eight days of Jesus' life. So we can tell that it's significant. James Montgomery Boyce points out that of the 89 chapters in the gospel books, 29 and a half chapters are devoted to the last week of Jesus. It begins with the triumphal entry and ends with Jesus' resurrection. Okay, so that's the eight-day, seven, seven, eight-day period that we're talking about. In between those, we have the, the cleansing of the temple for the second time. We've got the Sermon on the Mount. We have the initiation of the Lord's Supper, and then the trial, uh, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. So one week in total, what we call in church history as, as Holy Week. So we create space each year, specifically to remember the events of Jesus' life, the last week of his life, as absolutely foundational to our faith. He was not simply a man or a good teacher or a morally upright icon, but as our Savior who came to the earth to die on our behalf. In this passage, we see Jesus being coronated as a king. So my, my purpose this morning, my goal is to focus on Jesus as king and the establishment of his kingdom as seen in Matthew 21. So why the triumphal entry? What is the significance of the triumphal entry? Well, Jesus is being coordinated as king. Fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, and all throughout the Gospels, Jesus has been acting upon, um, upon his claims and teachings of his kingship and his kingdom. Old Testament prophecies like Zechariah, Isaiah, Psalms, many others point backward to show us that this is what would happen, right? New Testament claims that Jesus provided all throughout the Gospels point to Jesus as king. He speaks of this kingdom that is coming. So in conclusion, there's this level of just excitement, of anticipation, of uncertainty, but it's, it's building, and it has been building for quite some time now. Jesus' ministry has been, uh, the number of people have been growing. His name is becoming more and more known the conflicts have actually began to increase, particularly with the religious leaders. His miracles, um, more and more controversial. And then there's been an increasing um, frequency talk of his death. So it culminates to this moment that we're going to read about where, where Jesus starts, quote-unquote, acting like a king. Okay, at least that's how it would appear. So, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Let's read that together. 
Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, when Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and her colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, Lord, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So this is a significant and momentous occasion. Jesus finally finally establishes himself as king, not just in word, not just in deed, not just by his miracles, but by action. He's fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies based on this demonstration. It was an elaborate procession. It was a kingly coronation. Now, this would have been very reminiscent um, of Israel history, of a conquering king, whether it be David or Solomon, of of a king coming in on an animal to be enthroned in his kingdom. So this isn't something that would be abnormal, but it, it had been a very, very long time, right? So this response by the crowds, let's look at it in verse 8. It says, they spread their cloaks and palm branches on the ground. This was a sign of respect, of submission to authority, to acknowledgement of him as king. Now, there's an Old Testament tradition uh, that we see in Second Kings, uh, that one, when one of Israel's king of old was proclaimed king in defiance of another existing one, his followers would spread their cloaks at the feet of this person, bring palm branches. So in essence, the, the, the situation that is unfolding here is very reminiscent of that. The people are saying, we are tired of the rule of Rome. We are tired of being oppressed. We're tired of not being our own nation. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, two of these sentences are from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. They they, they weren't arbitrary words. It wasn't just like, oh, what should we say? Hey, praise the king, you know. These were words from their history that they are using. They say, Jesus, Hosanna, save us now. They were anticipating that the Savior, that the king, would actually save. So what what were they looking for? People of Israel are looking for the one. They're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for the one that would save them. Been told from generations of old that he would come. So they start to put these puzzle pieces together, right? They go, oh, this is, uh, this is Jesus of Nazareth. 
the prophet who was performing miracles, who was um, claiming to be king. I've heard about this one. The son of David, he's the Messiah, he's here. So people rush out into the streets. They lay their cloaks on the ground. They lay palm branches down on the ground. Just as a, a brief aside of application, um, we're not that different at times from, from these people perhaps, right? They came because they were excited about the benefit that Jesus would bring to them, that the king could bring specifically to them individually. They'd finally be saved by Rome. Their nation would finally be reestablished from the time of the Babylonian exile all the way till now. They haven't been able to to function as a true established nation. And they hear that the king is returning and they're excited that moment, they didn't know that just five days later, Jesus would be betrayed, that he would undergo an unjust trial and that he would be murdered. This excitement before the disappointment is monumental. The people following Jesus expected their king to be different. There was a major, major misunderstanding here. Now, Jesus was fairly clear about this throughout his entire life and in his entire ministry, right? And, and we can see that now, but he repeatedly said over and over that he would die. In Matthew sixteen twenty three, even Peter, he, remember, he pulls Jesus aside and he says, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't think you understand what it is that you're saying. Let it not be so. And Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, for you are not setting you are not setting your mind on things of God, but of man. Now, today we have the benefit of looking back over the course of history and scripture to fully understand that Jesus meant when he said in Luke 19 that he came to seek and save the lost. Right? His kingship was different than what people expected. People misunderstood his kingship and his kingdom. Misunderstandings can be really difficult, right? Um, man, I, I think we find this in, in marriage and even with our kids so often. Like it just, it doesn't take very much of a miscommunication to completely derail a situation. One of my family's favorite stories about me is probably one of my most embarrassing moments. So I'm going to take the opportunity to share it on live stream video so that everybody knows now because they do love to share it. Um, my wife and I, or we weren't married at the time, but we were off for, for college. We came back at Christmas time um, to visit family because we were on Christmas break. And we came to our old high school and they were having a, a Christmas celebration of some kind with the choir um, that was doing Christmas carols and things like that. Well, at the very end of that performance, the teacher who's there stands up and says, hey, for all the alumni out there, We'd like to invite you up to the stage. For all the alumni that were in the ensemble choir, would you please come up? We, we want to we share this song. Well, I'm thinking, I wasn't in the ensemble choir. But all of a sudden, my, my wife or my, my girlfriend at the time is sitting next to me, and she's like, get up there, get up there, right? And my father-in-law is sitting next to me. He's like, Aaron, that's you. Get up there. And my sister-in-law is like, Aaron, go on, go on, get up there. And I'm like, I don't 
think that that's me. But okay, so I stand up and I, I wander down the aisle and I get down to the front and I stand on the, the bleachers and I realize I definitely was not in the ensemble choir. But by this point, it's too late, right? So I'm standing up there <laughs> and we don't sing a simple Christmas carol like... Um, God, rest you merry gentlemen, or oh holy night. No, um, they decided to sing Carol of the Bells, which is a, a very complex, very wordy song. <laughs> so for the entirety of that song, I'm standing up there smiling and singing watermelon with my mouth, just trying to not be look like a fool. Every time I look over at my family, I see them just rolling and dying it was a major miscommunication um, to that story. And I, I can empathize with the people here in Israel, in Jerusalem on that day, because there is something about trusting, <laughs> which I, I've had to build my trust back up with that part of the family. There's something about trusting when people say, hey, this is what's happening. Hey, this is something to be excited about. Hey, this is what's happening. And you trust that, especially when you're in community with people. So here people are in their homes, hearing and seeing, they can see people wandering down the road into Jerusalem. They see this massive procession, right? But why? Why would there be such a miscommunication? We see uh, through the various prophecies, uh, even in Psalm 72, we can see why um, the people of Israel in particular would be expecting that the king that would come would establish your kingdom. Let me just read a couple of verses from Psalm 72. May you fear, may they fear you while the sun endures. May he defend the cause of the poor and of the people. Give deliverance to the children and the needy and the crushed and the oppressor. May he have dominion from sea to sea. May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Right? So they're expecting that, man, when this Messiah, when this son of David finally does come, that, man, he's going he's gonna to free them, right? He's going to free them from Rome. He's going to establish his kingdom and all was going to be well. There was a misunderstanding of his kingship and of his kingdom. They expected a conquering king. What did they get? They got a humble king riding on a donkey. They expected an adorned king, one dressed in fine robes and a bedazzled crown. What did they get? A ridiculed king with a bloody back and a crown of thorns. They expected a powerful king, enthroned in power. And what did they get? They got a plundered king, dead on a cross. They expected the kingdom that would overturn the current oppression of Rome, and they got an unrealized kingdom. They expected a kingdom that provided safety and security, and instead they got a kingdom that brought fear by association. So what kind of a king did he say that he was? What kind of a kingdom did he say he would bring? Why the confusion? Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, a king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. 
For while the kingdoms of this world are built upon force, the kingdom of God is founded on grace. Let's read together. We we flip back to Matthew chapter 5. Let's go just a couple of chapters back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3. Let's read about the kingdom and the kingship that Jesus has. This is who he values. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a kingdom that values spiritual brokenness, that values the hurt, that values the gentle, that values the righteous, merciful, pure in heart, desirers of peace and of the persecuted. That's not what the people expected that day. It's not at all what the people expected that day. As a king, that's who Jesus loved. That's who Jesus sought after. That's who Jesus redeemed, and that's who Jesus died for. He's a king who came to serve. He's a king that came to suffer. He said in Luke 9 to his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. (laughs) So, So people were expecting a conquering king, and yet he was a suffering king. He was the king of a unique kingdom. A unique kingdom is an easily misunderstood kingdom. The mysterious nature of the kingdom is unpacked by Jesus in the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. In Matthew thirteen thirty-one through 33, most people of that day would have expected the kingdom to come in hot, right? Come in guns blazing, come in with wreckage and carnage like an action movie to establish peace and set the oppressed free. The parables of the mustard seed and the leaven have an entirely different outcome. It paints an entirely different picture. The kingdom's arrival would be small. It'd be virtually unnoticeable. Life would go on as if really nothing had changed. And nobody would even really be able to notice it unless you were already looking. Even though the kingdom had already arrived in the person of Jesus Christ, 
He was born as a small baby. The kingdom came when Jesus was born into this world. Now, it's not manifest yet. It's not manifest yet. Evil would not be crushed immediately. It would persist until the day of judgment when it would be removed from the world forever. But we see why many people did not believe. In fact, many who hailed Jesus, Hosanna! On Sunday, yelled, crucify him. On Thursday, Thomas Schreiner says that Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom had indeed come, but its presence was hidden and small, and that the great day of judgment was still future. This already but not yet characterization of the kingdom constitutes the mystery of the kingdom, right? That it came when Jesus came, and we see glimpses of it. We see glimpses of his kingdom coming through this present darkness. Every time there was a miracle, every time Jesus fed the hungry, every time Jesus opened the eyes of the blind, he healed their legs, he professed that their sins would be forgiven. Those little pinpricks in this present darkness, shining the light of his kingdom through. Many people in Jesus' day didn't see it. And quite frankly, many people in our world today don't see it either. So I I have two questions for you to consider. The first is this. Who is your king? Who is your king? Who has authority over your life? Have you submitted your heart to him? Have you submitted your kids to him? How about your finances? How about your decisions? How about your security? Have you submitted those things to your king? And that is easier said than done. Yes, I can say that easily. Oh, I've been a Christian for a long time. Lord, I give you those things. I I am under your rule. I'm under your reign. I submit to your authority. But in practicality, those things are much easier said than done. How about sin? Have you submitted your deepest, darkest sins before the Lord? He claimed victory over sin. And not only over sin, he claimed victory over death. Second, who is it, whose kingdom is it that you're living for? So not just um, who is your king, but whose kingdom are you living for? Jesus talks a lot throughout the Gospels about the distinction between the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. Which kingdom are you helping build? Do you represent a unique kingdom? An odd kingdom, a strange kingdom? Or is there no real distinction between your priorities and the priorities of an unbeliever? funny matt matt chandler actually says you won't cool anyone into the kingdom right what he means by that is you're not going to lead anyone to the kingdom to jesus by being cool right that's not the way that god's kingdom works so what what do we what do we do how do we respond to this as as an individual how do we how do we respond to this as as the church tim keller says this he says on the one hand The church is a pilot plant 
of the kingdom of God. It's not simply a collection of individuals who have been forgiven. It's a royal nation. In other words, a counterculture. The church is to be a new society in which the world can see what the family dynamics, the business practices, the race relations, and all of life can be under the kingship of Jesus Christ. God is out to heal all the aspects of sin, psychological, social, and physical. When the world sees us, they should be able to tell that it's as it should be, right? Not like they see it. We need to be living out the kingdom here on earth. The issue is that even in this current situation and circumstance, that we find that, man, our response is just the same as many of our neighbors. Like, I don't know about you, but that is, that is convicting to me. That is convicting because I know, I know in my head, I know in my heart, but I do not allow the truth of that, the reality of God's kingdom to penetrate in such a way that it changes my actions or my behavior. My friends, we represent a kingdom that is unique. Be unique. Be strange. <laughs> All right? I'm not talking cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs strange, but I am talking be different. Be different. We have an opportunity this Easter to show people who the king is and what he has done for us. This morning... We've got a wonderful opportunity. We are actually going to, uh, we're going to do something different. Um, first, we're really excited about this as we enter into this holy week. We are going to share the gospel in ways that we've probably never shared the gospel before. So what is it that we're going to do? We're going to follow the lead of a church from Los Angeles. It's called Reality LA. The The main pastor there is Jeremy Treat. He and his team got together and came up this, with this idea, and we love it. And so what we are doing is we are asking you to partner with us as a church to share your story, to share God's story in and through you to the world around us. So this morning, you should have gotten an email that pushed out the link to this morning's live stream as well as there was additional information in there as well, which take you, takes you to our website. Our website has got a lot of different resources to actually equip you and help you to do this. So in essence, what is it that we're asking you to do? We want you to take a selfie. We want you to take a video of yourself proclaiming what God has done in and through your life to share the gospel. We want to we tell the story of the gospel through the stories of people, who have been changed by them. Our intent is actually to inundate the social media feed with life change stories during the week leading up to Easter. And we want to celebrate it. So our ask is to go to our website, outline your story, record it, upload with hashtags. Now, for many of you, I don't even know what hashtags are, okay? If you want to get a hold of somebody on staff here, we're happy to help you. There's also uh, really, really helpful um, tutorials. Jeremy, Angela, Zach worked really, really hard on getting this put onto our website. So you can actually go and hashtag Jesus changed my life 
And then the second hashtag is hashtag HCF stories. So what it's going to enable us to do is it's going to enable us to be able to search um, every Jesus changed my life story and actually incorporate it both into the website as well as um, connect all of these stories into one place. Imagine social media feeds blowing up with testimonials of familiar faces of people who have accepted Jesus as their king and as their savior. Right now, we've got a a brief video example uh, from Pastor Brent that he did for us that we want to just show you, hey, this is kind of, in essence, what it is that we're looking for. So roll that beautiful bean footage. I've been a family that was uh, very committed to Jesus. Um, However, as I look back, um, I viewed following God as, as something that uh, I had to be perfect, uh, had to be lovable, worthy, and uh, near perfect for God to love and accept me. And I was not that. Um, I often lived the, my life the way I wanted to, um, however I wanted to. It was very me-centered. And uh, because of that life, I was uh, often fearful that I, would be, that I would die and be separated from God in hell. And I certainly didn't want that. Um, later in college, uh, God began to break me of my me-centered life. And I realized that God sent Jesus to live a perfect life in my place, to die the death that I should des- I deserve to die, and arose to give me life that I would not have otherwise, and um, he did that in my place. Now as an adult, um, my heart's greatest desire is really to live for the glory of Jesus. Do I do that perfectly and all the time? No, and that's sin. However, Christ in me, the Holy Spirit, uh, is changing my heart to live for him and for the glory of Jesus instead of myself. Been a family that was uh, very committed to Jesus. Um, however, as I look back, so that's, that's in essence what we're looking for. And guys, we we are really excited about this. But I want to I want to take a moment to just note a couple of things. All right, first, this is not about you. Okay, I need to be very very clear about that because even I feel a little bit self-conscious about this, right? This is not about me. This is Jesus's story, all right? We are a part of his story. He allows us to be a part of that story, and so we want to make much of him, all right? This is not about us. Secondly, it does not need to be polished, all right? If you, <laughs> Jeremy was saying this morning, if people are taking two, three, four, five takes in order to do this, you might be doing it for the wrong reasons, Okay, we want this to be not polished. We want this to be real. We want it to be authentic. And lastly, we just ask that you post these. Okay, it doesn't do us any good if we don't all do it. So I'm committing to you that I'm going to do this. I would like to do this for some of my kids. I just think it's a, a wonderful opportunity to flood the internet and social media that usually has so much negative stuff in it just to say, God is good. God is good. God is good. Look at what he has done. So that's what we're going to do. Instead of baptisms this year during Easter service, we're going to show Jesus's power to save through the display of God's grace in this way. This could be one of the most evangelistic Easter's that we've ever had. And so we're just praying for that. So will you join us as we pray for that? So check out our website for additional details. Uh, We're really excited about what that's going to look like. Mitch is going to continue leading us in worship. But we're going we're gonna to do this ever so slightly different, is that I want to ask that if there are things that, that you guys are struggling with right now, if there are things that you need prayer for right now, we're going to invite you to just go on to whatever social media platform you're on, whether that's Facebook, whether that's uh, YouTube, and just post and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I would love prayer for this. 
or my husband lost his job here and we could really use some prayer and support. We're going to just make this an interactive time of worship and of prayer together, joining together. So if you have anything that we can pray for, I'd encourage you to send it in. Also, if there are things that you maybe even need to just confess and say to the Lord, Lord, I have not had you in your rightful place as authoritative king in my heart and in my life. I'd encourage you, just confess that out loud. Confess that to your family. If you want to share that with us as well, we'd gladly accept that and and give God praise for that. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Right? He didn't have... He, he could have and most likely looked at that procession, the coronation down into Jerusalem as being somewhat unnecessary, right? Like he didn't have to do that. He could have just wandered in and be like, all right, let's do this. Let's get this crucifixion thing over with, right? No, but to go to the trouble of saying, go and grab me a donkey. I'm going to ride this donkey into town. I'm going to submit to the will of the Father, shows us just how much he loves us. His entrance to the city was a, a simply preliminary to the destination on the cross. So as we continue to worship, I encourage you to raise the gifts of praise to him, thanking him for being our king and our redeemer who will one day come and bring that kingdom full circle. Let's worship. Let's worship.